0: Hello and welcome to the ZMM Podcast. Today we're listening in on a conversation about the practice of parenting and how self-inquiry can impact all of our relationships. These are just two of the topics explored by Bethany Senkyu Saltman in her new book, Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. Senkyu is a poet, essayist, and consultant, as well as a senior student in the Mountains and Rivers Order of Zen Buddhism. She was drawn to the study of attachment theory to understand both her own karma as a parent and the ways in which her own upbringing, starting from the beginningless beginning, has influenced the ways she has related to her now teenage daughter. She was interviewed about the book soon after its release by former ZMM monastic, Shea Zatimi, who started by asking Senkyu to read an excerpt from the book. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did.
1: On the last morning of a week-long silent retreat, people are invited to share their experience aloud with the group. On one of those mornings many years ago, before Azalea was born or conceived, I spoke out in the pre-dawn stillness about my mom. I talked about how I had been thinking of her that week and how I was thinking of her in that moment. I described how, as we all sat there on our cushions, my mom would be rising in the darkness of her small apartment in Michigan and walking in her robe to her coffee maker, pouring herself a cup, making it light with Kroger brand half and half, then heading back to bed to watch morning news programs, smoking as the sun rose. I talked about how sad I felt to see her like that, alone and so far away. I talked about how I was often irritated by her, or disappointed by her, and about how our lives were so different in every way that I just didn't feel intimate with her. After meditating for a week, though, I softened toward her and longed for more closeness. After we all went down to the dining hall, one of the monks hugged me in the breakfast line and said, It sure sounds like you're intimate with your mom, which left me scratching my head. What did she mean, me and my mom, intimate? I've just been saying that I felt the exact opposite. I had always thought of intimacy as the kind of personal closeness I had been seeking my whole life, that super amped up rush of connection that I had never felt with my family and had searched for through sex and love and drugs and now even Zazen. While my meditation definitely brought up brought about a lot of very subtle states of settling which I appreciated and held dear, I kept pushing for more thinking there had to be something else to it, some final frontier of uber state of bliss. Because I thought I knew what the word intimate meant As in two ships reaching for each other in the night, I miss the point that true intimacy comes out of the experience of being one thing, which sounds super spiritual and special, but really it's not. It's just the way we're all built. People know it. Poets talk about it. Pablo Neruda writes, So I love you because I know no other way than this, where I does not exist, nor you. So close that your hand on my chest is my hand. So close that your eyes close as I fall asleep. So close that sitting on my cushion in the dark Zendo, I was right there with my mom as she rose from her bed in Michigan. Neither one of us was alone. But I hadn't seen it, how unremarkable true intimacy is. How sometimes love flows so easily we don't see it. Our pre-dawn birds of a feather co-arising was no big deal. Like every other person on earth, holding someone else in mind, loving them. It was an entirely ordinary situation.
2: Thank you for reading that. Thank you. This You're is um, Bethany Saltman, Bethany Sanku Saltman, reading from her recently published book, *Strange Situation: A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment*. And um, I am Shay, formerly Monastics WeCo, and I am delighted to be in conversation with my friend Bethany about her book. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, I just want to say how much I love that passage. It's Mm -hmm. one of the many, many pages I dog-eared as I read the book. Um, I miss the point that true intimacy comes out of the experience of being one thing. I have turned that over in my mind many, many times. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about why you chose this passage to read.
1: Sure. Um, first of all, thank you for having me and thank you for that lovely introduction. And it's such a delight to be here chatting with you, my dear, dear friend um, and and Dharma sister of many years. Um, why did I choose that passage? Um, it was funny reading it aloud. It feels like, you know, it's been a while since the book came out. It doesn't really feel exactly like my words. <clears throat> there, there's some distance, you know, I'm stumbling. I don't have it. Quote, by heart, which is kind of great. It's exciting, actually, to have a little bit of distance from this thing I worked on for so long and so hard. Um, you know, well, one reason I, I chose to read it today is because I'm listening to a book by Danny Shapiro called Devotion right now, and she's talking about her mother, and she's talking about love, and she's talking about spiritual practice, and I'm not exactly sure why, but that that passage was coming up for me today. As I was reading her book, i um, listening to her book, this idea of waiting for, you know, to feel the wind of that ship passing, <laughs> you know, like where's the marker of true affection? Where's the, where's the love? Where is, where are all those good feelings? Where is that, um, that waft of delight from the other? And, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of time kind of waiting for that, and um, and in spiritual practice, in deep meditation, in zazen, we come to understand and see for ourselves that what um, John Bowlby, Mary Ainsworth, the the scientists, the scientists of attachment, discovered is true, which is also what the Buddha discovered is true, which is that we are all one thing. And that waiting for that experience, that juicy, fun, delighting experience of the other doesn't come through that, you know, gaze in the other direction. It actually comes when we deeply resonate with ourselves. And then everybody else arrives and it's a party and it's beautiful and it can be really fun. So it's not that they don't exist. You know, as Dido used to say all the time, you and I are the same thing, but I am not you and you are not me. So, you know, this book, this journey, this life is a meditation on that experience in very real time. And when you're a parent, um, a parent, a mother or a father, um, and a parent, um, as an A-P-P-A-R-E-N-T, it becomes, you know, this whole um, kind of puzzle of when do I appear as a separate being? When do I feel this intimacy with my child? When does she appear and I disappear? It's a very, um, you know, it's a very beautiful dance when we can see it that way. And it's treacherous when we can't.
2: Wow. There's, I mean, there's so much. I'm wondering if we should back up if you want to say a little bit kind of about the book in general give sure. people, an idea. And then I, I want to return to this passage that you read, but I just thought sure. it might be good to orient people. Yes. Good idea. Um, yeah. The book is called
1: Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. Um, it I began the journey of this book when my daughter was born 14 years ago. Um, she was born after um, my husband and I lived in at Zen Mountain Monastery for two years, but had been practicing for many years with Dido Roshi back in the day. Um, And when my daughter was born, I um, loved her very much. I had all those markers of affection, could feel the wind of that ship. But I also felt um, like I didn't have what it took to love her the way I thought I was supposed to love her. I had a lot of love for her and I felt like me. I I really did expect this kind of maternal, um, you know, robe to descend upon me and I would feel this intimacy all the time. I would no longer feel edgy. I would no longer feel impatient. I would no longer feel like myself. And this kind of blew my mind and terrified me because I looked back on my life and I saw so much brokenness, so much fear, so much sadness, so much trauma so much loneliness. And I thought I must be broken. I must be broken. And um, I knew the Buddhist teachings were that I was perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Um, I believed that on a deep level. And yet I didn't. And so when I discovered the science of attachment really stumbled upon it and particularly Mary Ainsworth's um, 20 minute laboratory procedure called the strange situation, that looks at the relationship between babies and their caregiver, um, I thought, Ooh, this is, you know, a compelling bit of information. <laughs> um, in a 20 minute laboratory procedure, um, we can see the way a relationship has formed and how that relationship will continue to form in a karmic sense for the rest of that child's life. And, you know, and the next generation after generation after generation um, it was, it's a, beautiful um, laboratory procedure. It's not an experiment because there are no controls, but it's something that happens in the lab. It's happened tens of thousands of times around the world with every single kind of parent and child we can imagine. And it holds true and robust and, and really shows us something very intrinsic about relationships that is um, very interesting. So, so I spent 10 years studying the science of attachment Um, I'm not a scientist. I barely graduated from high school, but I figured, you know, I threw myself into this and um, learned a lot and wrote a book. And so this is, the book came out in April. It's part memoir, part science, and part biography of Mary Ainsworth, the woman who devised the strange situation. It came out by Random House in April, 2020.
2: I feel like there's so much in what you just said that I could talk to you for a week about all the things <laughs> that you just said, but I want to point out to people who are listening that, among many other things, the book is a, um, a uh, what's the word, a um, recovering of a feminist icon in Mary Ainsworth, a scientist whose work has gone um, I f- well, I, what I want to say about it is that I feel like you bring her to life in this book in a way that's so beautiful and important um, and that the work that she did with The Strange Situation to me sort of mirrors what you did in writing this book, which is mm. to kind of immerse yourself in, into what um, by all appearances is just sort of a chaotic gestalt and trusting um, your question deeply enough to begin to discern the patterns and to bring those out in a way that's not just coherent, but useful to other people. And mm-hmm. I feel like your book really does that. Um, Thank you. And it's sort of a love letter to Mary Ainsworth. I, I fell in Indeed. love with her Indeed. as I was reading Indeed. the book. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to go back to was um, in the passage that you read, Uh, While my meditation definitely brought about a lot of very subtle states of settling, which I appreciated and held dear, I kept pushing for more, thinking there had to be something else to it. And as I heard you read that, I resonated very deeply. And I imagine that many of the people who are listening to this, who um, are likely Zen practitioners also, and who practice Zazen, can relate to that that feeling of what you're, you're talking about of like, this can't possibly be it. Cause I'll know when I encounter it, it will be pie in the sky. It will be amazing. Right. I will know it and it'll be like a flip, a switch flipped forever yeah. and happily ever after. And, um, you know, <laughs> just relating to how that's such a core piece of all of our suffering. Um, in the book, it's so poignant in your um, relationship with Azalea um, mm. and your your relationship to yourself as a mother. And and I wanted to go back to what you said about um, that you weren't sure that you were loving her the way you were supposed to love her. and And sort of talk about how that's so much, um, I relate to that so much in my own practice. Um, I mean, I'm obviously, I'm not a parent, but this idea that, um, we can't possibly be the one as we are, we can't, this can't possibly. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, and you do talk quite a bit about your Zen practice in the book. And, um, if you could talk about how that both helped and hindered your own exploration throughout, you know, the course of writing this book and kind of rewriting your story about who you were and what your life was about and and sort of talk about um, your relationship of Zen practice to sort of um, what I think is sort of a redemptive um, ending to the story. Mm. Um, so if you could maybe make some of those connections for us. Sure. I will try.
1: Um, you know, the story, my relationship to Zen is so intrinsic in my life, in my sense of self. Um, you know, I, before I became a Zen practitioner, I was studying the Dharma in my own ways. Um, I was a poet. I, um, was just you know an obsessor of um, those subtle states of settling, like I just wanted that in my life. I was really intrigued by how that happens um, and i've always been that's always been what i've been drawn to since I was a little kid, not you know doing much <laughs> but feeling a lot and so when I discovered Zen proper, I um, was blown away that this thing existed where I could actually do the thing I felt like I was doing anyway and with other people and that there was kind of a whole world around that. I I had no idea that that's what meditation was, that that's what Buddhism was. Um, so that was really exciting. And, um, so, so I guess I brought my, all of my, questions and self-doubt into that study aka i'm not the one i'm not enough even though the very thing that brought me into zen was this feeling of um, confidence about some kind of mystical experience um you know so it's kind of like two parts And, um, so I'm not sure if I'm really answering your question, if I understand the question exactly, but, but, you know, how did my Zen practice address or not address this question that I'm not the one, it kind of just tossed it around. It still tosses it around because it is my question. And I just look at it in different ways. Like I, like I have looked at the study of attachment, just holding it up like a jewel, like, okay, what, what is this thing that that continues to plague me, um, it's certainly lightened over the years of practice for sure. I have, you know, I can see it now. I can see it as a thing, a question, as opposed to it running the show. And that was a lot of what that 10 years of studying the science of attachment was, was holding this thing up apart from myself. So it hasn't changed in a certain sense, but my relation, you know, it's the classic, it's the cliche, my relationship to it has certainly changed. And my idea of who I am has totally changed. You know, I thought that I was some kind of a broken um, person who didn't know how to love. And I don't believe that anymore, actually, which is a revolution and a revolution. I mean, it's like, what do we think liberation is going to be? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Exactly. Um, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. I mean, okay, maybe it can and let's hope it can. This certainly can't be the pinnacle, but um, it's pretty awesome.
2: It's amazing. Um, I love this sort of dance of confidence and self-doubt that you talk about, that those things are kind of in tension, and that's not necessarily a problem, but can actually be juice for the whole thing.
1: Totally. I mean, tension is where it's at. Yes. You don't well, want to get flat. We don't want to become, you know, sort of one-note Nellies. That's no fun. <laughs> if we could could, yeah
2: i also want to ask you um because the word attachment means something to zen practitioners and your book is um about attachment yeah and so if you could talk a little bit about that sure um,
1: yeah yeah so from you know they're really two sides of the exact same coin it's a beautiful thing um attachment from a psychological perspective the science of attachment comes Um, you know, we could also, it's easier to call it a secure attachment. We are all attached. Um, It's the way our bodies work. We um, address ourselves to someone in order to keep ourselves safe. When we're babies, we can't do that for ourselves. And so we, you know, we attune in the direction of a person and we do that. um, It's a life or death matter and how that person responds to us will affect us forever. And that's just the truth of the matter. So we either have a securely attached experience of that or an insecurely attached experience of that. It's not destiny, things will, can change that. But, um, you know, so, so, we, so we have a secure attachment. It's basically a sense of trust in the world. Um, it's very gross, it's a very broad, it's a very forgiving system, a mind-body behavioral system um, akin to sexuality, fear, affiliation, you know, we're not talking about the kind of insecurities that we all feel all the time. Like, oh my God, my hair looks terrible. Or, oh my God, that person hates me. You know, those things are certainly can play a part, but we're talking global sensation level you know, regulation of the body type systems. That's what attachment in, installed in our biological equipment at Absolutely. birth without exception. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's like respiration, um, digestion. We attach the same way we digest. We, some of us digest better than others. Um, some of us are more securely attached than others, but the, the mechanics are the same and they're there for all of us. Um, so in terms of you know how does attachment from a um, psychological point of view and detachment from a buddhist point of view they are completely interwoven because when we have a um and there there are studies on this um when we have a um a strong sorry my phone's ringing but we're just gonna have to this is
2: real yeah. life yeah,
1: yeah. It is. um when we have a securely attached system, we are in a much better position to be able to let go of ourselves and develop a detached relationship to our thoughts and our sensations from a Buddhist point of view. So that's an incredible, um, reality. So when we dive into practice with all of our, you know, capital and small I insecurities and want to just like drop our our stuff, you know, let put down the pack, whatever, without really digesting, metabolizing, healing. It, it's really a uh, not a great idea. It's because it's not going to work. We we you know these things have to happen in tandem. We have to develop a trust in a secure base, whether that secure base is ourselves, a teacher, God, a parent, a friend, a lover a home, a dog, we have to have some experience of safety in the world before we can let go of ourselves and um, you know, become one with all things.
2: Wow, I'm just taking that in. I don't think that I'd heard you sort of make that connection about how those two, or at least not in that way that was so clear.
1: Well, you know, but, um, but I want to make sure that we don't, that it's not um, linear. It's not like, oh, I've, now I have a secure base. Yay, now I get to let go of myself and become one with the universe. It is so not like that. It's And this is my experience and this is what the science and the Dharma both say. So this is a, an incremental, iterative, totally nonlinear. two steps forward, one steps back, one step back. You know, this is a mess. We are a mess. And we are a perfect mess. So, you know, I think that this is, um, you know, we so want everything to make a certain kind of sense. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay, great. So now I better get back to therapy so then I can get back to the cushion. So then I can la-da-da-da-da. Like,
2: no, no. Yeah. I think the world is um, really teaching us that very clearly right now. <laughs> that nothing um, makes any freaking sense. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I heard you talking with Sharon Salzberg about your book, you talked about how, you know, if if a person is a parent and they are actually like enraged and frustrated and they hate themselves and they just try to like act loving toward their mm-hmm. child, yeah. their child actually, I mean, and forget even a parent and child, but just anybody, any yeah. person interacting, And, um, I think this is something that happens to all of us and particularly in spiritual communities, there can be this sense that we have to be a particular way. We're supposed to be nice. We're supposed to be compassionate, whatever we think that means, but that really we can't hide what's actually happening inside of us. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit, I found that so important when I heard you talk about it before, um, just about how that works and how that was so much of the work that you talked about in the book is like kind of accepting actually what's actually going on with you. And part of the reason that I'm asking about this is I think in our current moment, when people are in such extreme situations Mm -hmm. of being with their families all the time, or, you know, um, having to like relearn how to teach their curriculum online or all the wild chaos that people are Mm -hmm. experiencing right now and how that sort of journey to understand that like our, our, our private internal life is never just private and internal. Right.
1: Yeah. You know, so the Sharon Salzberg, um, conversation I think what you're referring to is when she asked me, um, a question about how does a parent learn to, um, sort of accept their child's rage. And I said, you have to learn to accept your own rage. And, and I think that that's true for all of us and for every um, aspect of, you know, how do I learn to accept someone else's love? I have to feel my own love.
2: I think that's true. Oh, now, just, pa- just pause right there. I'm just taking, can you say that again? Actually, <laughs> that was so... <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um, you know, again, this is just, I, I believe this to be true based on my life that in order for me to receive your love, you Shay, Zwicko, um, I need to be able to feel love in myself. I need to be able to experience my own love and that's my love of myself, my love of my family, my love of this life, my love of you. Um, you know, we, and Dido used to say this all the time. He can't give us anything. The teachers can't give us anything. Our parents can't give us anything, other than their own deep support of their own experience. Mm. You know, because like Azalea and I had a rough day today, just based on you know school starts. School, you know, in air quotes, starts tomorrow. Um, Ten million, you know, mini dramas, and. Um, She's never the problem. It's always that I can't tolerate my experience on my own sensations of feeling frustrated and impatient and angry. I haven't learned to, to um, manage myself or regulate myself as well as I would like to. Now, does that make me a bad parent? Of course not. What, make, what would make me a, a less effective parent is if I wasn't able to admit that to myself and ultimately to her. That's what Mary Ainsworth called the long-suffering mother, <laughs> who um, you know puts on that happy face and is you know changing a baby's diaper, and she in who's observing all this in the room can feel the mother's rage. You know, there's nothing worse than a rageful smile. That's like evil. As opposed to, oh, I'm so frustrated right now. I'm really sorry. It's not your fault, but mommy is really having a hard time.
2: Like teaching, teaching them how to be human by being human. Exactly. And it's less threatening because then you're like,
1: oh, there's my mom and she's frustrated again, as opposed to like, what's with that mysterious mask that person is it's, wearing? Yeah.
2: It's not confusing in the way exactly. that that makes mixed- message exactly. is exactly
1: and that's um, the and that's the hallmark of a securely attached adult which we really want to be able to get to in practice if if not in our attachment relationships it's the ability to, the ability to have mixed feelings and that's where zazen can really come in handy say more well i mean that. to just be able to say oh happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad, you know, like really like, whoa, it's, you know, it's all there. And if we're paying really, really close attention, particularly in the beginning years, decades of practice, when those emotions are sort of higher, you know, the octane is a little higher. um, You have to pay really close attention because they move quickly. Now, sometimes if we're, you know, on the avoid, if we skew avoidant or have other kinds of issues, we aren't actually aware of our feelings. So our job is to become aware of our feelings. And that's a lifetime or two, right there. Oof.
2: Yes, agreed. Um I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you have seen um certain or how you are thinking about some of the the main themes and thrusts of your book in light of our current situation Mm. um the situation of COVID uprising climate crisis um all of it and um you know in the last six months and I just want to also name that like You worked on this book for over 10 years. It came out on April 21st, kind of at the height of lockdown at the beginning of the pandemic, um, which is a heck of a time to have a book come out. Um, And so if you, you know, I'm wondering how you're sort of watching everything that's been unfolding and seeing sort of the themes of your book in that.
1: Hmm. Oh, wow. Um, Well, I would say one of my favorite um, things that Mary Ainsworth came up with was this incredibly brilliant observation that the, well, let me back up for one second. So the, the first people that she studied um, were 26 mothers and babies in Uganda and she, she, she started to see, as you were talking about earlier, out of this gestalt of chaos. Like, I think these people have relationships. I don't really understand what's going on, but my colleague John Bowlby is talking about this attachment thing. Let me see if it's real. And she began you know, living with these women and just falling in love with them and thinking that they were just incredibly cool, which they were. And, um, and getting to know them and feel them and, and help them and be part of their lives. And she started to see that some of these women were, um, some of these relationships were more, quote, securely attached than others. Later, she discovered that when she was trying to figure out why, why some of them were more securely attached than others, she discovered in her notes that what she was calling the securely attached mothers um, had more information about their babies. She was just going in there and asking all kinds of questions about um, how they raise their babies and you know, how do they potty train five, at five months, by the way. Um, when do their children walk? How do they talk? Who comes in and out? What do they like to eat? You know All the stuff of being a parent. And she realized that the securely attached mothers were what she called excellent informants. So she developed this as a variable that she was looking at excellence of, um, information and they were paying attention. They were paying attention. Were they? Well, they were, they were paying attention and they could talk about it, which is really interesting from an attachment point of view, because the adult attachment interview is, um, looking at a, an adult's ability to tell a coherent story about their childhood attachments, regardless of what happened to them. So this means that you could be, you could report having a perfectly blissful, childhood, but you tell an incoherent story, you get marked as an insecurely attached adult because the belief is that it's that unconscious mind of, um, we learn how to pay attention and to share coherence through our attachments. So it doesn't really matter what you say, the truth is going to come out. So that's, so that's, you know, what happened um, later when she, you know, that's one of her proteges who came up with that, which is the most amazing thing. But so it's not just that they were paying attention, but they enjoyed sharing. They could tell a coherent story. They, they had the details they could share. And so this idea of being an excellent informant is something I think about a lot. And in these last six months, well, in the last, you know, many months and years of my life, um, I've really been interested in how people, um, pay attention to what's going on around them and how they communicate about it. And, you know, from an attachment point of view, the the mothers who were the the, um, excellent informants created secure attachments for their children. But I believe that we can create a securely attached society, culture, world by paying attention to what the hell is going on around us. And, and creating our own security, our own internal security so that we can pay better attention and we can be better informants. And, and that's a really beautiful and um, accessible way to begin this journey of social justice, of, of revolution, of changing the way that um, our culture works from oppressive marginalization to empowerment. We can pay attention, we can learn something about other people. But when we are preoccupied, when we are avoidant, those are the technical terms for insecure adults, you're either a preoccupied adult or a dismissing adult. Those are such profound states of mind that you can't pay attention to what's going on around you, let alone know enough about what's going around you to actually make a
2: concerted effort to change anything. I mean, and let's just also name that the overculture is not doing anything to help anyone pay attention and tell a, a coherent and redemptive story about Absolutely anything. Not.
1: No, it's like um, a
2: very disorganized attachment system, which is why having a spiritual practice um, and ability to sort of turn inward and pay attention to our inner states is such an incredible, uh, indispensable, it would seem, gift. Indeed, particularly
1: when we remember that inner and outer are the same thing. And that this is not a refuge. It is a refuge, but it is not a, um, a hiding out. It can be a hiding out, but it certainly doesn't need to be a hiding out. I know I have been really into hiding out lately. I just can't, I don't feel like I can offer much. I'm so, I feel so frozen. I feel so angry. I feel so afraid So I'm doing the best I can in my small ways of prayer and sitting and offering and work and trying to take care of what's going on around me. Um, And to remember that, you know, it is a mystical truth that inner and outer, that harmonizing the inner is taking care of the outer, that there is no distinction. And that's an important thing to remember, not as an excuse, but as a resource.
2: Thank you so much for naming that. I mean, I I really relate to that experience that you're talking about, of feeling kind of frozen and angry. And in some ways, I I just think we're all kind of traumatized at a very mass scale right now. Very much so. And and so um, to give ourselves a little space for what we're experiencing. Yeah. Um, Is there anything else that you want people to know about the book or know about anything else that you're working on or anything else that's like inspiring you right now? Is there anything else? What do you want to leave us with? Don't bypass your feelings. Try
1: to, for the good of the world, for the good of everybody who is fighting for, um, you know, righteousness, for justice your feelings, our feelings, like I'm talking micro level, sensation level feelings, experiences. We all have to do this together. And, and each and every one of us is so important. And I want for everybody to really give themselves the space to do that because it's going to help, it's going to, it's going to help them And even though it can feel scary. um, So there's support for that. There's, you know, tons of support at the monastery. You know, please find support. But that kind of, um, and I I hesitate to say inner revolution because that really does make it sound like it's happening just on the inside. But that's the kind of world I want to live in. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the kind of world that will help us do the work that we need to do so that we can recognize our own pain and others. You know, that is... ultimate point of like a meta practice we start with ourselves because we're right here and we're totally preoccupied with ourselves but ultimately it's about healing other people but we're not going to be able to heal you know again it's that cliche that sounds so reductive but it's just true we can't give what we don't have so i really hope that people can and i'm saying this because i'm saying it to myself too you know like please let's let's go easy and um, you know, try to be loving, try to be love as much as possible.
2: (sighs) Not so easy. Thank you. I needed to hear that today. Um, It's been such a pleasure to talk to you about your book and the world. And thank you. Thank you. Such a pleasure.
1: Such a delight. That was Mary Ainsworth's favorite word. Delight. Here's to delight. Here's to delight.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening. Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment, has been earning great reviews and is currently available wherever books are sold. You can find out more at bethanysaltman.com. And there's more to listen to from Zen Mountain Monastery in the Mountains and Rivers Order wherever you get your podcast. Or visit us online at zmm.org media.